Hello and welcome to Lady Time. I'm your host, Jill McGregor, and my guest today is Sarah Howlin. Sarah is a homeopath for the past 20 years and currently runs a busy practice here in the west of Ireland. She has a particular interest in treating pregnancy and birth, as well as mental health issues. And she also has a degree in communication studies from DCU in Dublin, and has a great interest in film and photography, as well as a love of animals. You're very welcome, Sarah. Thank you for being Thank my you. guest today. <laughs> so how's a beautiful day here? I know I don't live too far away from you, but it's a beautiful day here, but you live right out by the sea in the beautiful west of Ireland. How's the sky there? <laughs> it's actually, it's gorgeous this morning. Yeah, and we actually have a bit of blue over the barren, which is always nice to see. Yeah. Unusual. It's been rainy, it's been yeah. wet, but it's looking good today. I know. One thing we get a lot of here is rain, but gosh, on beautiful days. But you 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 live in a very beautiful place. Yeah. So um Sarah, we've got lots to cover today, uh, because you have led a very, very interesting life and you have a lot of interests. Um, but we'll kick right in there with what was foremost in your mind uh, when you approached midlife? Wow. Um, I suppose just yet another transition. I think, you know, when you're younger, certainly when I was younger, there was a, there was a feeling of at some point you get to, you know, being an adult and that's kind of it. And then you're there and it's, it's, it's very much a destination. And then I think as you get older, you realize that's just not the way it works. And it's just constantly changing. So I think hating my 40s was like, oh, wow, okay, here is another massive transition that's going to happen. Um, I didn't feel frightened of it, but I wasn't sure what was going to be on the other side. And I think, um, so there was a certain amount of excitement about it. Um, I also went through a separation in my 40s. So that was also massive, you know, from being, you know, from a very long relationship. So that was kind of huge as well. So for me, approaching midlife was like, wow, blank sheet again. What's going to happen next? Um, also, I think the, the process of aging and watching the body change in the 40s is, is kind of strange and hard to get used to. Um, I do remember a friend of mine when I was in my 20s and she was much older and she explained to me, she said, Sarah, at some point everything just heads south. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And then you hit your 40s and go, ah, right, now I get it. Okay, um, but yeah, so I don't know whether that answers you, Jill. Oh, um, yeah, no, it, it does. And the thing of heading south, yeah, no, I can totally, I think most, most uh, women in midlife can relate to that. And of course, when you're young, nothing is going south. And you in particular, Sarah, you still look to me like you're about 28 29 30 <laughs> so i i don't know i just well i suppose you you've uh, 
a lot of interest in health and healing, but you look exceptionally young, uh, really do. Oh, thanks, uh, Gina. Yeah, no, you really do. Um, but uh, did you, uh, I mean, that, that did you have any, uh, when you mentioned symptoms, what were your symptoms and what sorts of things did you, you have? Mm. And I know you probably treated a lot, you have a lot of knowledge behind you with, with treatment for homeopathy for a start and probably other things. Yes. But what, uh, what symptoms did you have and how did you go about treating them? Treating them. So I suppose towards the end of my 40s, my period, you know, periods would become, would have become very irregular. Um, and then, and then it was very interesting, actually, I have been somebody who was really lucky that I had never suffered from period pain. But that was something that I got in my mind. And that was kind of shocking. It was like, whoa, I've spent my whole life being pretty okay with periods and feeling very lucky for that because having treated a lot of women with period pain, I know how difficult it can be. But that was something that I got in, I suppose, what they were called perimenopause. Um, but it didn't last too long. And then, yeah, periods would have stopped. So I suppose the heat from, you know, the, the flushes are the big one, you know, that that extra heat in the body and that um, irregulation of the heating system and trying to get used to that. But, you know, Jill, I have a thing with menopause. I just think, I think it's becoming over-medicalized. I, mm. um, I think it's being seen as something to treat and I don't necessarily think it in itself is something to treat. I think it's a very natural process from, from treating women myself. You know, I, I've treated women with virtually no symptoms, period, stop. That's about it, you know. And then I have treated women with, you know, 28 of 32 symptoms that they've now listed for menopause. Um, so I think it's as individual as women ourselves. So, um, yeah, I, I just, that worries me, the medicalization of, of menopause. And I just feel it happened with birth. It, it happens with young girls. Now I see more and more young girls of maybe 16, 17 with period, you know, period, period pain. And they're just put on the pill. Mm. And I see the same girls then at 25, they're still on the pill. And then at 35, they come off the pill and they're trying to get pregnant and there's issues. And, you know, it's, there is something about our hormones aren't our enemies. They're our friends, you know, and, and I feel menopause. Yeah, we come down off estrogen and it's been a fantastic hormone, you know, and it's great. And, and it is like a coming down process. Um, but once that's done, there's other things to replace it. There's a whole other system that kicks in and we needn't be frightened of that. There, you know, there's a whole, there's like, yeah, there's a whole other thing after menopause, I think, from treating older women that I go, ah, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. But yeah. To answer your question in terms of my own symptom picture, the heat would be the main thing. The, the, the disturbed sleep is, is difficult. Um, and I think especially for women who are working full time, I think that can, that's really, really difficult for them. If you've got to be, 
you know, you're putting in 40, 50 hour weeks and you're having disturbed sleep. And I think that's, you know, the draw towards HRT and why HRT is so many women end up going there. And I think sleep is probably the major issue because it's very hard for women to function. Um, and that's where I think there needs to be societal change and recognition around that. Um, um, around that time in a woman's life and that maybe, you know, days can be taken so that she can catch up on sleep or more flexi time at that time for those that period of four years or whatever it's going to take for that to settle. Um, for myself, I think having done yoga and breathing and things like that have really helped with the sleep side of it. And I'm not a particularly good sleeper anyway, never have been. So, you know, it's like, oh, okay, here we go, 4 a.m., wide awake, um, right, what will I do? <laughs> you know, and I would, yeah, just breathe, relax, remember my body's resting anyway, so it's okay. I will eventually sleep at some point. It might be 20 minutes before the alarm, but that's okay. I'm just trying to manage that part. Um, Goodness, uh, Sarah, in that just few minutes, everything that you said has encompassed so much. I mean, we almost, and I was thinking I would love to get another uh, whole session with you particularly on almost everything you have just said in the last few minutes uh, I, I it's actually literally blown my mind I almost don't know what to say to you next um, but uh, but you know because there's a lot in that what you've just said is uh, Basically, what I thought myself, because when I was going through, and not to talk too much about myself, but when I was going through the menopause myself, which is a good few years ago, I, I didn't get to, to really, I didn't know very many people because all of you were a lot younger than me and weren't anywhere near it. And um, so I uh, just took it from books like Christiane Northrup and Marilyn Glenville were my two go-tos. And uh, it's the same thing it's just uh literally uh the next stage of your life there's nothing wrong with you and i did see this medicalization of of the uh of the menopause and of course what's behind that uh, i think a lot of big pharma's behind that because there's going to be a lot of hrt and various things can be sold to you you know to to going through that stage so it's really lovely to hear how you might treat just the, the symptoms of of a, a natural stage of what you're going through do you know and uh i i yeah so it's uh, amazing to hear that um you also so you've treated you've like brought a lot of women not just through menopause but through pregnancy and through uh childbirth other things that you're interested in as well so you have helped people you mentioned coming through their periods and you didn't have a lot of problems with your periods either neither did i actually again it wasn't until i got into perimenopause um do you think that there's, uh, like you, you touched on young women being given, or any women being given the pill, how do, does that actually, have you seen any way that that actually affects 
the hormones and the cycle that then set you up later on for problems when you do come to menopause? Uh, yeah, that's a very, very interesting question, Jill. I suppose a lot of the women that I would have seen or been treating over the last 20 years and maybe since they were teenagers are now in their mid to late 30s or early 40s, so I haven't seen them go all the way through. Um, I, you know, and I have huge sympathy. I've treated women who just suffer so much with periods and it's, you know, they dread that seven days. And often there is, you know, there are underlying conditions like endometriosis, um, when period pains are very painful, um, pelvic pain syndrome, things like that. And I suppose as a homeopath, I'm looking at the symptom picture rather than the diagnosis um, because you know we would see that the body throws out the symptoms as the signposts um, for the illness and we would treat those so you know I would have treated women over the years with with very painful periods and and would have helped and then you know whether the pill affects things long term I my feeling is, and I'm not anti the pill, I think the pill was an incredible liberation for women, you know, and, and can be for women as well um, to get, you know, it got us out of that constant cycle of having to give birth. And so it was an amazing thing, but it's like all amazing things. It's, we create them and then we forget to put boundaries on them. And that's my feeling around the pills so now um i i would feel possibly it is being overused long-term effects of that i'm not sure in a way i suppose because the pill has allowed us to delay you know the idea of becoming pregnant and for a lot of women now that's pushed out further and further and i do treat a lot of infertility you know so women in their mid to late 30s and now is the time and they've been on the pill for 10-15 years that's only one aspect of it they've also been working hard they've done their traveling they've did and now it's time and then it doesn't happen um and that can be so devastating you know um again you know there are remedies within homeopathy that we would treat infertility um Lillian van Eyken actually a homeopath she's recently moved to France but she would have been in Galway for years she's done a lot of work in this area and would have had great success um but it's watching women struggle and I don't know Jill you know whether the pill and the fact that a lot of people are on the pill for so long is having a knock-on effect of fertility I'm not sure about that um yeah, I feel there's an awful lot about women's health that hasn't really been explored properly. You know, this idea that we're born with our eggs and they're slowly dying from the minute, you know, and I'm not sure about that, you know. I, I know on a scientific level, yeah, there are, but I, I've seen women at 48 get pregnant. I've seen women in their late 20s struggling I you know and and again it would be unexplained infertility so my feeling is there's just so many factors involved and um, it's very complex
Yeah, yeah. What what factors then? Uh, do you want to talk a bit more about that? What kind of factors um, have you come across that, mm. um, you know, is it lifestyle? Is it uh, nutrition? Is it, uh, y- you know, is it maybe that uh, maybe people do too many drink and drugs when they're younger? Or do you know what kind of different things is it, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel it, it's pro- possibly all those things. Mm-hmm. And this is why I, I would say it's really complex. And I'd also would want to be very careful because I think that's one of the things for women when they are struggling with infertility is there's this blame, you know, it's like, well, something you did. So you did too many drugs when you were young or you were too ambitious and you worked too hard or you left it too late or... And again, it just feeds into, for me, that, you know, it's always your fault, you know, somewhere a lot, whereas actually sometimes it is just unexplained. And I feel there is an almost imponderable thing about pregnancy. You know, you hear of the most strange circumstances. I mean, I've treated women who might have been trying, you know, had rounds and rounds of IVF and finally finally you know we're heartbroken and finally gave up and a year later they're pregnant you know and 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 that's where the imponderable side of of fertility and and comes into it I think um and so therefore I'm I'm kind of careful about saying yes it's this that or the other because I don't that could imply blame and could imply that there's something that you did wrong and I don't think women who experience that have done anything wrong. I think it's circumstances. Um, but I do think stress is a massive part of it. And I do think pressure, you know, there is that thing of you've got your career sorted, you've done your traveling, and now you're 34, 35, now, now you need to do that. And I think for a lot of women, it's almost like a project. It's like, right, this is the next thing. And that's really hard on them. Um, and I think it can be difficult to conceive in, in, in those circumstances, you know. Um, yeah, because it becomes like a mission then almost yeah. sometimes to have, oh my gosh, it's I don't have much time. Another thing in the media, I don't know how, if you have thoughts on this, is uh, that, uh, oh, you're getting too old, you're leaving it too late. And then that becomes a psychological thing, which yes. probably links back into the stress and how stress, uh, I mean, you'd know a lot more how stress actually does affect the body internally because that's probably one of the biggest factors possibly in ill health generally is stress, especially the, you know, stress of any kind. It's been stress in years gone by, of course, different kinds of stress. There's a lot of other levels to the stress levels in our world, modern world today. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, women being fed that idea that they're, you know, you hear it constantly, oh, the ticking time bomb and our biological clock and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, some women's biological clock is ticking at 22. I, I was pregnant very early, you know. Um, for some women, it's at 41. You know, it's this idea of, you know, this race against time almost. 
and, and before you become past your sell by date. And I totally agree with you, Jill. I think the stress that that creates for women is a massive factor, you know, um, for them in the, in trying to get pregnant. I mean, you know, physiologically stress has an effect on our body, you know, our cortisol levels are raised. There's more adrenaline. There's, you know, so even on a chemical level, stress affects us. That's all part of our endocrine system. Our reproductive hormones are only one part of our endocrine system. So if our endocrine system is under pressure from stress, and we know that to be true, why wouldn't it affect our reproductive hormones? You know, so, and, and, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I think stress and anxiety, they're just so pervasive. I'm treating children as young as seven you know, now for anxiety and it's not worry, it's anxiety. So this, this is an epidemic. Yeah, anxiety is certainly an epidemic. Um, what factors, what have you seen is causing that, especially in a child? Yes. You know. um, in children, and interestingly, I would tend to see more young boys with anxiety and I, I don't know whether that's just my practice or you know whether that's indicating something so I wouldn't want to draw any conclusions from that but a lot of it is maybe boys who are that little bit more sensitive um, often very intelligent kids and they just can't find their place um, and find the whole school environment very difficult and 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 bullying you know and bullying is i think a word that's bandied around too much i think you know kids can be mean to each other i think that you know kids are can be quite mean and they can also be quite beautiful and lovely to each other and that's just a natural part of growing up but then there is actual bullying. And I think for some children that just can be de quite devastating and cause a lot of anxiety. I've also treated a few children who, um, it's, it's environmental. It's what they're hearing, it's what they're seeing, even though parents would be turning off the news and trying to protect them from it, they're picking it up. Mm. Um, and these would be ordinary children, you know, they're, they're not coming, you know, they wouldn't be being fed this from parents or anything else. There's no conspiracy theories going on, but they're feeling it from the world, that the world is not very safe. And I think for this generation of children, it's very hard to reassure them. You know, whereas before it would be like, it'll be all be okay, go out, go out and play, it'd be grand. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, well, you can't go out and play and it, and it probably won't be grand. And they know that. So I, I, I see that with children. I'm having the existential conversations with kind of nine-year-olds that you're going, wow, there is so much for you to think about, you know, and that's really hard. Yeah. And yeah. especially over the last few months with the lockdown and with all of this pandemic um, uh, scenario going on. Um, uh, after, I think, was it the 29th of June here in Ireland, we, you, people, you know, were able to like kind of go into each other's houses again, more or less. And uh, but I, I just across from me is a little green. And uh, in all the years I've lived here, 13 years, 
children would be playing in the green, but not as much as they did after the 29th of June. It was a pure joy because I, my my day job, I'm sitting here where I am now, and I, my window is right out onto the green. And it was such a joy. All the kids were out, on, apart from when it rained. They were out, they were running around, they were like doing what kids should do. And I just thought, oh my God, please let that be, you know, a counter action or a counter, you know, to what has gone on before. Yeah, and I, I noticed that children, in treating children, you know, seeing children coming back after kind of the lockdown and so many an awful lot of children really enjoyed it they loved being at home they loved having everybody at home they loved just going out to play and um, they loved not having five activities to get in the car for after school you know um and what was really interesting i for a lot of kids when they came back i was you know what did you did you miss any of those activities no you know, which was amazing. And we think as parents are breaking their backs, trying to get kids here and there and pay for it and all the rest. And, and that's fine. And that's everybody doing their best. But actually, as you say, children just really enjoy being outside and playing and they don't get the opportunities to do that so much anymore. And it's that, yeah, that idea, we even have a name, you know, we have had to call it something, that idea of free play. But I know kids of our generation, that's what we did. Mm -hmm. That that's, idea. That's true. I was out on the street with all the kids and we were called in for, for dinner, which was at lunchtime now, <laughs> and then called in for tea and then sent to bed uh, at whatever time, do you know? Yes. Yeah, I, re I always remember coming back once during what must have been an afternoon to my mother, um, to the house. And my mother asked me, what are you doing while you're back here? Do you know, because it was like, you, you know, you get breakfast, lunch, dinner, and if it's a fine day, off you go, you know? Um, and yeah, there was possibly a lack, lack of care in that, I don't know, but you know, there was that idea of, also as a child, I think you were allowed to have more of an independent life, whereas, for kids now and I do think that that you know contributes to their stress and anxiety is that we monitor them and we have to monitor them because we know now how dangerous you know the world can be and the awful things that can happen to them whereas I think when I grew up in the 80s I think you know in the 70s I don't know whether parents were oblivious but there certainly was out of sight out of mind this all swings and balances, isn't it, Chill? As time goes on, you know, we, 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 care, we seem to care more, but in that caring more and being more mindful, are we destroying something quite precious that children had? I don't know. I read a, a really great book. Well, I thought it was really great. And I'm going to forget the name of the two authors, but it was called The Coddling of the American Mind. Now, it, it, it was by John Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but it was called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he went in, they, should I say, went in to um, exactly what you were just saying about 
you know, the fear. Is there a, a huge fear out there as to how dangerous is it really? Do you know? Mm -hmm. And he did it. Now, I won't go into that now because it's not really placed. But if anyone's interested, they can look up the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. But it's 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 about, it's not just, they, they happen to be in America. But it did, uh, it was a good, great discussion about the fear and the anxiety. It was all about the anxiety that is in the younger generation. Now, I don't know what you call the, the generation if they're under 25. Is it Gen X or something? Do you know this all names? Whatever, but it's generally for under 25. What's happened to that generation in terms of anxiety levels that have increased from small children up to, you know, older. But um, Sarah, my goodness, that's uh, just been really great insights listening to you. And um, you, there was a couple of other things because you have led a very interesting life. My very, very first time ever to see you. And I thought, my God, you have a child and you didn't look like you were more than 14. <laughs> and I can assure our listeners, she really doesn't look more than than 28 oh. or 29 <laughs> fresh yeah. like amazing skin and bright 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 eyes um but you have done more than homeopathy you've also done uh well and maybe you want to talk a little bit about um your interest in film photography and animals and you've also part of a committee of people who set up Throd Ficnic. And for any international listeners, I'll let you say what that means in English because that's an Irish sort of a word. I'll hand it over to you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, Trad Ficnic is, I mean, I suppose the reference being trad as in traditional music and arts um and the picnic bit was kind of a bit of a, a joke really on the electric picnic um and and also with trad picnic it is genuinely a picnic because we run it as a there's no alcohol it's a family it's very much a family event um it's a unique event in that it's a got a donate what you can ethos so we don't sell tickets um people donate and then we fundraise and we also get sponsorship so that's how we run the festival and as far as i know i know it's unique in ireland i don't think there are many festivals that are run like that and we have kept it that way because we feel it creates a kind of very egalitarian feeling to the whole thing there's no security barriers there's no there's nobody has paid more for a ticket there's no vip area there's no there's none of that you know and we literally have i i'm for my sins i run the the volunteers who are amazing people who give up their time um and we have the bucketeers i call them so we have big white plastic buckets and people and that's how it gets paid for and you know, it was suggested to us a few years ago, well, would you not, you know, now you're getting a bit kind of, you know, it's, the buckets aren't really the thing. And it's like, do you know what, that's who we are. The white buckets are grand, do you know? And some people will put 50 euros in the white bucket and some people will put in 50 cent. Doesn't matter, you know. Um, so it's very much a celebration of traditional music. Um, 
and traditional, you know, and the art, arts as well, and the language. Um, so it's just a lovely little festival. Um, and it's interesting, you know, because it, it has gained in popularity. And as a committee, there's myself, Liam Collins, Bridge Barker, and Steve Sweeney. Bridge Barker does the lion's share of the work. She's our chairperson. She's a force of nature. She's incredible. We all give our services voluntarily. But there was, it did bring up something interesting because a few years ago, the festival started growing and getting more notoriety and whatever. And it was, we had to sit down and go, okay, do we want to grow this? Do we want to change it? And a little bit of me was going, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do this or let's do that. And then when we talked about it, we thought, why? You know, why do we, as human beings, always feel we have to make something bigger, better? It's lovely as it is. Why do we need to change that? We can do more interesting things within that, but actually it doesn't need to get bigger. And it just, I found that very, you know, for me it was interesting because I know that's where my mind had gone to. Okay, this is getting successful, so we'll, we'll make it bigger and better. And it's like, actually, we don't need to do that. Let's just enjoy it for what it is. Um, There's often something lost when you get to that point, isn't there? And it does get bigger and then something that, I don't know, what would you call it? That je ne sais quoi, that X factor that was there at the beginning um, often goes. Now, I am ashamed to say, Sarah, I have not made it to Trodficnic. Um, and I've been meaning to and meaning to and meeting, you know, saying to friends, oh, I must get out. And I didn't even know that that was the ethos uh, that, uh, you know, underpinning it, which is a beautiful ethos. Like, it's just so beautiful. Um, but and what are you going to do this year? Can you do it this oh. year? It's yeah. usually around now, isn't it? It's usually around September, isn't it? It's it? usually first week of July. So actually, that's yeah. why I didn't. I was usually at the film flat. That's why exactly. I missed it. Yeah, I knew there was something else. You're a busy woman, Jill McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this year, obviously, we have to take the decision, the same as all the other festival makers, to you know, we couldn't go ahead, but we did um, an online program. And actually, because we had already got some of our funding, we'd already got our Arts Council funding, you know, and with the Arts Council funding, it's like use it or lose it. So we decided eight weeks out, okay, let's try and pull some things together. Um, so we all became, well, Bridge particularly, we, we became little filmmakers. We had great cracker. We, we made a program, which they're up on YouTube, actually, um, called On Torres Share which means the trip back west. And what we did was we filmed kids, you know, kids, young adults and adults actually, in each of the balias, the villages from Barna to Karna. So that's the other name of the, it was from Barna to Karna on Torres Shear. So we just stopped in each village, had a tune, and then there were hyperlapse on the car, and then to the next balia and another tune. And it was, no rehearsals, no, it was literally Bridge would turn up in an area and go, who's around today? It's a lovely day. And whoever was around, so there's 
kids on the beach, kids on rocks, kids up on the bog. It, you know, it, and it, and it was just really, a really organic. We thought it should be about 20 minutes. I think it's ended up being three half hour programs and we could have kept going. And the National Archive have actually been in touch. They want to get it on a memory stick because it's a little snippet, but we had no idea. We were just trying to think of, okay, we can't run the festival. What is it that we do? What is it that we're interested in? Well, it's community and it's what's going on in the community. And that's really, that's it. It's basic. It's not, it's not, you know, amazingly theoretical. And we thought, well, what can we do? And that was something that we could do. So we did that. And it, and it was just gorgeous. Um, Oisin Barker, Bridges son did all the filming. And yeah, so, you know, really it was a mother and son team and the rest of us were on the edges. So it was, it was gorgeous, actually. Um, and then we did another thing, which was really lovely. We, um, we had this mad idea. We wanted to get an open top bus because we thought, OK, we were we were putting gigs out online over the weekend as well. But we thought, what about that demographic? And we have a lot of elderly people who come to the festival and they really look forward to it. And it's just gorgeous. I love seeing them there. Um, and we thought we're not going they're not going to get any of this the people who aren't online and it's Connemara and there are a lot of people, you know, particularly the elderly who aren't online. So we were trying to figure out how do we reach those people, that demographic. So we decided to do a tour of the nursing homes. So the original idea was to get an open top bus um, and have a band on the bus and pull up and be able to play for the residents. Because obviously this was COVID and you know we weren't going to be able to go in. So yeah, insurance companies yeah made that incredibly difficult. So Cougar Cayley Band, who are an amazing Cayley band, and um, they came on board and we got a bus, but we had to set up in each place. So we got three nursing homes. We played three nursing homes in the end. In one in Spittle, in Car in Carna and in Cairo. And we, we just did it as a little tour over the day and it was just gorgeous it was just lovely um and there was something really you know it was lovely for the residents but the bit i i was taken aback with was for the staff you know because as some of them said you know there had been nobody in to do anything with the residents since march um so we hadn't kind of factored that in so they were going it's just so lovely to see people here again um, and kind of that we're not forgotten because it was I think there was that feeling around the nursing homes with COVID it was like once everybody stopped dying and we had the proper protocols put in place and it was like great now the nursing homes are done and they got a little bit forgot forgotten um, and you know I just think people who work there are incredible people you know tasked with minding our elderly and what a task so. I know. and uh, that's so heartwarming to hear that that's like I can literally feel my heart swelling as you tell me that story do you know and the joy and the pleasure it must have given to the residents in the nursing homes you know and uh, you know it's something I was saying before we started I'd love to do is uh, is to capture the stories of really our old our much older our elders actually our elders 
elders who who have so much wisdom and it's a part of this series maybe later on that um, I interview much older people as well just to capture their stories you know um, oh, yeah I think that would be amazing yeah amazing. and uh, I, I maybe uh, touch base with you on that Sarah it might be something we could do together um, love to do that um, oh my goodness and uh, Trod Ficknick is any of that up online that you can watch or anything yes yes so the Torah Shear um that that we have a youtube channel trad picnic youtube channel so everything yeah. goes up there and also there's a facebook page there'd be a lot of stuff goes okay. up on that but yeah you can watch programs on that okay well i'll put that up along with your uh, oh, yeah. email address as well uh in a when i put up your when when this is up um is there anything you love animals? You said, and you also like. Uh, did you did you put your filmmaking and photography practice in when you were doing that? Yeah, you you mentioned that you had to get out there and make little films uh, during Trod Ficknick as well. You know, I I didn't have a lot of time to do it because work you know, was really busy when the lockdown came. I moved all my work online, like everybody else, my consultations, and I thought it would drop off, but actually it ended up being a really busy time. So I didn't get out to film half as much as I would have liked, but it was in very safe hands. And it was, you know, we, we, we were there with the ideas. Um, yeah, the, the film and photography, you know, I, like I say, I, I, I studied, communication studies when I was I went to college when I was 17 um, I wanted to go to art college got my place in art college but my parents were did not want I think they thought I was wild enough already and were terrified of what art college might do to me so I got the communications on the CAO and the, a deal was made of go there for a year and then you can go to art college um, which are, of course that never happened so I did that but then I yeah so I would have been qualified when I was 20 and then I had my first child at 22 so in a sense whilst I would have maintained a you know great interest in film and and photography it all it, it all changed for me then you know um, and actually that was one of the things in my in my 40s that came back was I, I picked up a camera again. I think I just got a really good camera phone, actually, and started taking pictures. And it was like kind of falling in love again. It was like, oh, I remember loving this. How did I forget that I, that I loved this? So, and I also, I think when you have children, all you do is take pictures of your children. Whereas my children are at the age now where, you know, my youngest is 16, so she's like, get away from me. You know, I mean, don't want to yeah so so all of a sudden it was like oh I don't have to take pictures of children anymore I can take pictures of what I want and I suppose that's where nature and the natural world come comes in I you know as you said I live in Connemara I think it's the most beautiful place in the world on a sunny day um, and and the rest of the days are also beautiful I I'm I feel quite blessed you know I, I live beside the sea it's like a moving painting and 
yeah there are days where the, the gray and the stone and i think how the hell did i end up living here and why am i still here and then the song comes out and then i go oh, wow how lucky am i so um yeah so getting back into the photography in the last while and really really enjoying that and it is a little bit like falling in love again it's it's exciting and and i have no idea where it'll go um and i don't really care where it goes you know it doesn't need to go anywhere it's just something that i've rediscovered and i think that's one of the things about getting older isn't it it's like you go back you you remember things that you loved and maybe you lose them for a little while or you move away from them for a little while but actually they come back and it's really lovely when they do um so music would be part of that for me with trap music but all kinds of music i love all kinds of music i love dancing um that's really important to me um yeah and and that those things can continue and keep going and that you don't reach a stage in life where you can't do those things. Oh, well, I'm refusing to reach a stage in life where I can't do those things. <laughs> I think that's, that's dancing on the Zimmer frame yeah, if I can get yeah, away that's, with it. That's good to know that I'll be able to, I'll, I'll have at least you, yourself to dance yeah. with when we get older. Well, we're usually on the dance floor together. Together we I, are I, when we get the chance. <laughs> when we get the chance. That's great. Yeah. Oh gosh, Sarah. So come here, Sarah. Uh, what uh, what's been your greatest challenge in life so far? Okay. Yes, yeah, so many. Um, so many. You know, isn't I don't know. Isn't life all about challenges mm. and, and it is, yeah, and it, is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, being pregnant at twenty two was challenging. I didn't know anybody else who had children. Myself and my partner just moved back from like quite a wild scene in London to Galway where I knew nobody. So that would have been a very challenging time of life, but also very exciting. So to me, yeah, often those two things have gone together where something's been very challenging. There's also been a bit of excitement around it. I suppose, you know, on an emotional level, my separation would have been very challenging. That was very, very difficult. You know, it had been a long relationship, four children, and that coming to an end, it was really sad, you know? So that that's massively challenging. Um, but, but there's life after that as well. And I think that, that's important to, to acknowledge and there's very tough years. And then you get to a point where it's like, oh, okay, this is, this is, this is actually okay um, and life does go on but I know at the time that was very challenging mm. and just in terms of identity and also how people treat you kind of differently you know when you've been in a couple for an awfully long time and all of a sudden you're not in a couple anymore you, you, you were treated a little bit differently and that was kind of difficult um, I'm incredibly lucky i have amazing friends i i really do i just treasure my friends and that's what you know got me through that stage um and i think they allowed me the support that i could support my kids and you know that everybody it's it's that it takes a village it takes a village to 
to manage a separation as well. <laughs> um, yeah. So I would say, yeah, that was some of the most challenging mm. times. And that is, that, that would be ch very challenging. Thanks for sharing that, Sarah. Um, is, uh, and to kind you know, ha ha what's been your greatest achievement so far? Could even be a part of that, do you know, or what, yeah. are you, what are you particularly proud of in your life to date? Well, I suppose my children, although they probably won't listen to this, would, you know, I have to say the four of them, don't I? <laughs> and, and genuinely, they probably are. I mean, I sometimes stand back and go, wow, you know, there's four humans and I was part of their, you know, entry into this world. And that's, that's quite amazing. Um, I'm very proud of them rather than me, maybe. Um, but I, yeah, proudest moments. I suppose it's an interesting one, isn't it? I hear my mother's voice in the back of my head going, pride before a fall now, so be careful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I give you I'm free reign to be proud, Sarah, of what you've done <laughs> with impunity. <laughs> Thanks, Jill. I mean, I'm, I'm proud myself and Terry did come back in the early 90s and opened up a vegetarian restaurant in Galway, which is called the Sunflower on Key Street. Oh. And we were just full of the ideal of everybody in the world was just going to be vegetarian or vegan and it was going to sort out the plastics problem and the climate problem and everything. And that was in the early 90s. Um, and we did that for a few years. And I'm proud of that because I think we were young and idealistic enough to go, yeah, but sure, just do it. You know, that's, that's obviously the right thing to do. So let's just do it. And we had the balls to do it and we did it. And I am proud of that. And what's interesting is I still believe, you know, those same things. And somehow that all got lost in, not in my own life, because I'm still a vegetarian and I'm still passionate about the climate. And, and what I think, in the world there was almost an opportunity then as we came out of the 80s and we were all used to basically having feck all there was an opportunity there and instead we just all got really really greedy um so yes i'm proud of the sunflower i'm proud of my kids i'm proud of of having run my own business basically for the last 20 years and managing to keep going through some tough times with that um I'm proud to have the lovely friends I have. I just, yeah, yeah, they're amazing. And I do remember the sunflower. I was one of your regular uh, customers and the vegetarian curry was just to die for. Oh my goodness. And I was so sad when, when, when it closed, but you were there for a good few years, way ahead of your time way ahead of your time early 90s that's 30 years ago so you have every 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 right to be proud of that do you know you're a uh you were a forerunner to to say the least you were a forerunner yourself and uh terry was amazing um sarah what hopes and visions do you have now for the future for your own life for the future um, or even beyond your own life do you know so. yeah i mean yeah i i think it's hard to have personal 
hopes at the moment because I think the planet is in such a state. Um, so uh, my hope are I have great faith in you know you were mentioning Gen X or Gen Z. Do you know that yeah. yeah, we're now at the end of the alphabet. I don't know who comes after Gen Z actually. Yeah, which worries me a little bit, but I, I have great faith in these kids. I just think they're really switched on and I think they get it. So my hope is that there are enough of us who still want to change things for the better um, and really tackle climate change. Um, and I think with the energy of those young people, if we can harness that, so that's a that's a hope that I have, but there are days I feel a bit despairing about that. But it is a hope. Um, personally, I just hope to stay healthy because there's loads of traveling I want to do. I I, I think I'd like to study again at some point. Um, so that's creative things I want to do. So basically, I've just got loads to do. So <laughs> I hope I stay healthy. Um, uh, yeah, so there are kind of hopes and dreams, Jill. Is there anything, any wisdom, uh, nuggets of wisdom that you have or a legacy you would like to hand on to the younger generation or what would you say to them today? Yeah, I don't know whether I have much wisdom to impart. I, I'm not sure now about, about wisdom. <laughs> you do, you <laughs> but, do. You do. <laughs> I, I, I think I would say to them, I know what I'd like to say to my younger self, and that would be it gets better. Do you know, I think as you get older, it gets better. Um, it gets easier. And also, I think what I'd like to say, to, yeah, you know, is just don't be so hard on, her, on yourself. I think human beings, and that's, I see it in my work, we're so hard on ourselves. We really feel we can't make mistakes. So I would say go out, make loads of mistakes, learn from them and have fun. That is a great piece of wisdom. <laughs> because we can't learn unless we make mistakes. <laughs> That's what you, you do learn from. I completely agree there. So thank you for that. Oh, Sarah, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure and very insightful for me personally, and I'm sure for the listeners uh, to listen to this conversation and hear everything that you've had to say. Um, you do work in the West of Ireland as a homeopath and you work on Zoom. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter, you can still do sessions on Zoom. So would you like to give your contact details for uh, how people can contact you if they wanted to have a homeopathic session? And um, sure. put that up on uh, the description and we'll also add your trod picnic onto the description as well. Great, thank you, Jill, thanks a million. Yeah, what, what do you want to give your, your email address? Yeah, sure. It's Sarah Howling, S A R A H O W L I N G, at gmail.com. Um, and YouTube, uh, Trad Ficknick, if you just put in Trad Ficknick into YouTube, our YouTube channel will come up. And also, we have um, a Facebook page. So, again, just 
Trad picnic and it will come up and you'll be able to keep see what we're what we get up to. Some of it's a bit bonkers, but anyway, that's good fun too. Okay, well thank you again. Uh, this is Jill McGregor signing off from Lady Time. Please stay tuned for upcoming uh, sessions. Thank you. Thank you.